I lusted to thieve and did it, compelled by no hunger nor poverty, through a cloydedness of well-doing and a pamperedness of iniquity. For I stole that of which I had enough and much better. That is St. Augustine talking about his youth when he was 16 years old, and he went and stole some pears. To that is our master metaphor that we are considering today. I'm Pastor Brian Wolfmuller with Dr. Reverend Dr. Gregory Schulz. Uh, we are in our third of ten conversations about the master metaphors of philosophy, and today's topic is Augustine's theft of pears. Uh, our previous two topics were Plato's Cave and Aristotle's Cross-Examination of Nature. You can find those and all of the support materials uh, that we mention in today's show by visiting the website, uh, around the word website at whatdoesthismean.org, or whatdoesthismean.org, and clicking on the Columns Master Metaphors tab, and you'll find this conversation and all of the others there. Uh, Dr. Schulz, welcome uh, back this week uh, as we consider Augustine and his confessions, and his theft of pears. Thanks, Pastor Wolf Miller. Great to be here with you again. I was surprised that this made the list because it seems like a, almost a passing sort of thing. And in some ways, when you read the story, the account of Augustine, when he was um, 16 years old, he was back from school, he was staying at home, his parents were kind of taking care of him, his mom was really becoming a Christian, his dad, he says, is a catechumen, uh, and his, him and a bunch of buddies are just goofing around one night, and they they wander into an orchard next to his family vineyard, and they steal a bunch of pears. Now, it seems like a small sort of thing, and yet this has not only captured uh, Augustine's mind as something to write about, but it's captured your imagination as well as something that's great for us to consider. What's, what's going on uh, here? Well, thanks. Um, I think that the, the story, something like Plato's Cave, is simply so memorable that once a person reads it, in his or her scrounging around or courses on Western culture and uh, philosophy, that you really can't forget it. It seems that it was the same way with Augustine. So let's pin Augustine in very round figures about the year 400 A.D. I'd like to suggest, first of all, that he is on uh, one side of, of his bookend service. He's serving as the last major classical or Greek period of philosophy thinker. Augustine is also the person who sets the table for the entire menu of medieval philosophy, reaching from his day in 400 AD up until things come to a screeching halt in 1600 with Rene Descartes, the scientific revolution, and everything else going topsy-turvy. So um, in Augustine, we have uh, this very famous figure in the church, and a world-class philosopher in one person. Uh, the thing that I would say makes the story of the pairs uh, unique and intensely valuable for our thinking and for our sharing of thinking with other people is the way he addresses uh, a fuller human being than the Greeks seem to have contemplated. And he does it in light of scripture, which no doubt gives him this really full, um, true-to-life anthropology or understanding of the human being. So we get a chance to talk about something that the Greeks were never capable of doing, and that is to talk about the will. We, we talked about that last week when um, we had uh, Aristotle's cross-examination of nature, and then we, we talked about how Luther says in his uh, theses on, um, on, on man that the philosophers could never get to a full under, uh, understanding. They could never get to a full anthropology. Just to kind of set the table for contrast, how would... Um, how would classical Greek thought with Aristotle or, or perhaps even more generalized, 
generally speaking, how would they have considered humanity? Well, that's a, a nice open-ended question. So let me grab part of that, and then you feel free to push if um, I can try to help with a little bit better explanation. So the first thing I think would be historically, if we grab Plato, whose story of the cave we looked at in an early part of our series, um, Plato regards the human being essentially as um, an immortal soul. And that's not, um, that's not casual. He really thinks the soul or the CK is the essential person. The body is incidental, disposable, and the source of all evil. We talked about that a bit. Then Aristotle comes on the scene, uh, Plato's major, major student, and Aristotle gives that definition we looked at in our last interview uh, from Politics One, where he talks about the human being as zoon logon echon, so an animal, not a plant um, or an, a non-living type of being, but an animal type of being that's characterized by logos. And Plato, uh, Aristotle, that is contrary to Plato, seemed to have spent a great deal of attention uh, to the human body, though he's mostly known for thinking about us in terms of our um, unique performance in logos. Now, what, what I'd like to suggest is uh, that we could actually look back as 21st century people and see that Aristotle and Plato, though to be fair, Plato talked a bit about emotions and Aristotle talked a great deal about intellect, uh, didn't put things together the way we would today. So um, I would say that that really the human being is a body-soul creature, or if you prefer a body-soul, uh, mind or body amalgam, mind and body amalgam, and uh, that we are characterized especially by our activities of consciousness. And our consciousness, we could think of in, uh, in quotes as a triune consciousness. So we have the capacity for cognition, to think and rationalize things through to reason. We have a capacity for affect or our emotions, short-term emotions and long-term moods, I'd like to say. And uh, we have an aspect to our conscious being that we could call volitional or will. And so then here's the thing. Um, Plato paid some attention, a lot of attention maybe, to the notion of emotion and some to intellect, Aristotle paid a lot of attention to intellect, but none of the Greeks addressed will. So the question is, where does Augustine get this from? And I'd say the obvious answer is from Scripture and from the biblical understanding of human anthropology or who and what we are as human beings, um, which is exactly what Luther was trying to bring out in that disputation you mentioned. I think to contrast that a little bit fuller would be great, but what if we spend a little bit of time uh, working towards that by... By taking a look at the text. Now, this text, we're going to make a, a, a public domain version of this text available with our conversation and everything on the what does this mean dot uh, org website. Um, I, I have it here from the public domain, but you have a preferred translation for for Augustine's accounting of this uh, of the theft. Would you like to give that to us? I'd be happy to. Um, so this is a translation by Maria Bolding. It's both Sister Bolding and Doctor Bolding. Uh, her translation is the volume on the Confessions from the works of St. Augustine, a translation for the 21st century. Um, I, for what this is worth, 
uh, to you and to our listeners. This is the translation I recommend uh, for my courses where I teach Augustine. And uh, here's what Bolding translates from Augustine's text in Book 2 of Confessions. Beyond question, theft is punished by your law, O Lord, and by the law written in human hearts, which does not even, which not even sin itself can erase. For does any thief tolerate being robbed by another thief, even if he is rich and the other is driven by want? (laughs) I was under no compulsion of need, unless a lack of moral sense can count as need, and a loathing for justice, and a greedy, full-fed love of sin. Yet, I wanted to steal, and steal I did. I already had plenty of what I stole, and of much better quality, too, and I had no desire to enjoy it when I resolved to steal it. I simply wanted to enjoy the theft for its own sake and the sin. Close to our vineyard, there was a pear tree laden with fruit. This fruit was not enticing, either in appearance or in flavor. We nasty lads went there to shake down the fruit and carry it off at dead of night after prolonging our games out of doors until that late hour, according to our abominable custom. We took enormous quantities, not to feast on ourselves, but perhaps to throw to the pigs. We did eat a few, but that was not our motive. We derived pleasure from the deed simply because it was forbidden. Look upon my heart, O God. Look upon this heart of mine, on which you took pity in its abysmal depths. Enable my heart to tell you now what it was seeking in this action, which made me bad for no reason, in which there was no motive for my malice except malice. The malice was loathsome, and I loved it. I was in love with my own ruin, in love with decay, not with the thing for which I was falling into decay, but with decay itself, for I was depraved in soul, and I leaped down from your strong support into destruction, hungering not for some advantage to be gained by the foul deed, but for the foulness of it. That's Augustine. That's that's fantastic. Now, um, it, it seems like Augustine is arguing against something. Um, the the idea that um, that sin is the result of something desirable. In other words, like I'm I'm hungry, and so I go and I get a pear, or I, I, so that theft is motivated by hunger, or um, or that adultery is motivated by um, some sort of desire, but he's he's taking a step back from that, and he's saying, "Look at, uh, I had nicer pears at home. If I wanted a good pear to eat, I could have eaten a good pear. So that there must have been something else that was driving me towards this theft." And he and he points it to, really to uh, the the love of the of the crime itself, a, a corrupted nature, if you will. Yeah, how's that for an an honest self-evaluation, or rather, for a confession before God? By the way, um, Augustine's book Confession is not titled Confession because he's getting something off his chest. It's because he is endeavoring with might and main to line up his thinking and speaking with God's word. So it's confessio in the sense of saying with. Um, In Bolding's translation, there's hardly a page where you don't see a footnote with half a dozen or more Bible references. So uh, when you say Augustine is arguing, I'm sure you're exactly right. He's arguing 
um, in a two-part dialogue. On the one side is God speaking from his inerrant and efficacious word, and on the other side is Augustine trying to listen to that until he brings his thinking and his understanding in line with God. So in his 40s as a bishop, Augustine is looking back at this episode from when he was 16 years old, and he's actually in dialogue with God and his word over what to make of this. There was one little line in here. I, I can't find where it is exactly, but he says, um, <clears throat> this is the difference between someone who lives with their face towards God or their back towards God. And it looks like he, he's endeavoring to live with his face toward God. That's that's very well taken. So um, there's a, a less... Um, a less living understanding of this that we actually use in contemporary philosophy. So for um, the person's consciousness, whether you have cognition or will or emotional affect, we um, have discovered that for each of those conscious operations, there's always an object. So we never just think we think about something. We never just will or want we want something. We never just love as if we're sitting there in neutral being loving, but we always love something. And that's very um, blatant in the way Augustine talks about this. So there would be the problem of having the wrong object. And in that um, powerful quote you just mentioned about turning our face either toward or away from God, that's his way, I would say, of saying that our will and our emotions, uh, and for that matter, our cognition, are either turned toward God and lovingly and thoughtfully and willfully paying attention to what he wants, or we're fighting against him, right? So that would be um, C.S. Lewis's quote from, I think, The Great Divorce. There are two types of people in the world, those who say to God, thy will be done, and those to whom God says, ah, thy will be done. <laughs> Augustine, as he goes on to meditate on this, he he takes that up and he talks about how exactly what you just said that that there's there's always a motivation for sin. Um, I know this because I watch the crime dramas on TV and they're always at, they're trying to figure out what the motive is. Yeah. And if you if you can't pin a motive on someone, then you can't really get them for the crime, right? Yeah. And and Augustine's looking at this theft of the pears and he says, "What is my motive?" In fact, he asks that question. I'll read it here. He says, "What then did I uh, did what did then did wretched I?" So love in thee, thou theft of mine, thou deed of darkness, that in my sixteenth year of my age, lovely thou were not, because thou wert theft. But art thou anything, that thus I speak to thee? Fair were the pears we stole, because they were thy creation, thou fairest of all, creator of all, thou good God, God the sovereign good, and my true good. Fair were those pears, but not them did my wretched soul desire, for I had a store of better, and those I gathered only that I might steal. For when I gathered, I flung them away, my only feast being my own sin, which I was pleased to enjoy. And then he goes on a little bit later to say, I inquire what that, why that theft delighted me, because it had no loveliness. In other words, so, so he's, he's trying to investigate what was my motive there? It wasn't in the, in the object of the theft, but it had to be in something more something more profound, something higher. Uh, so, so talk a little bit about that. I mean, as as Augustine is meditating on this, what is he trying to get after? Well, first of all, 
I know that Augustine is such a um, fruitful author that a lot of folks in different vocations and disciplines uh, see gems and long lines of worthwhile understanding from him. I'd like to suggest, though, that the word motive is not a psychology term in the way that Augustine uses it in Confessions and elsewhere. It has to do with this matter of an aspect of our consciousness, say, love, uh, an affect or part of our emotions, and the object for that, right? So it's not that there is some sort of uh, psychological hiccup that's uh, pushing him or there's some sort of mistaken narrative in his mind that's leading him astray. It's rather that you can never love without loving something, and the something that he loves is not, alas, God. The something that he loves is transgressing against God. Or as in that older translation you were reading for us, um, that he's actually loving the theft, not the pair, and certainly not God. He's loving the theft. He, he After this paragraph, he has a long uh, a long paragraph, which I was absolutely, I mean, I was almost kind of in a daze where he, he lists, and I, I'm on, uh, it, it, the paragraph begins, for so doth pride imitate exaltedness in, in the older translation. Mm-hmm. And he goes all through this entire list of, um, wrong actions and he shows how they are a false imitation of attributes of God, it's 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 really quite incredible, and I would see, I would hope that the folks that are listening to us would would take a look at this. He says pride imitates exaltedness, but God alone is exalted. Ambition uh, seeks honor and glory, but honor and glory should be to God. The cruelty of the great wants people to fear them, but it's only God who should be feared. Uh, tenderness, curiosity, ignorance, sloth, luxury. Prodigality, uh, anger, envy, covetousness, fear, and grief. He talks about how all of these are kind of false um, attempts to imitate attributes of God, and then he summarizes it like this: all thus, all pervertedly Im- uh, imitate Thee, who remove far from Thee and lift themselves up against Thee, so that all of these kind of actions and the love of this crookedness is in some strange sort of way a perverted imitation of those attributes which alone belong to God. I happen to have um, Boulding's translation of that paragraph available, so let me catch a snatch of that here, yeah, too. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I'll just jump right into the, the middle of, of the article. Flirtatiousness aims to arouse love by its charming wiles, but nothing can hold more charm than your charity, nor could anything be loved to greater profit than your truth, which outshines all else in its luminous beauty. Curiosity poses as a pursuit of knowledge, whereas you know everything to a supreme degree. Even ignorance or stupidity masquerades as simplicity and innocence, but nothing that exists is simpler than yourself. I take it that that's meant in the old philosophical sense of holistic and complete. And what could be more innocent than you, who leave the wicked to be hounded by their own sins? Sloth pretends to aspire to rest, but what sure rest is there save the Lord? And there's much, much more. I I think 
um, we can really feel in a more contemporary translation that matches with our more contemporary Bible translations that we're reading that um, there's a you know at least a verse maybe a an entire avalanche of verses behind what Augustine is saying this is his famous notion of rightly ordered love so uh, we ought to love God first uh, we ought to love our neighbor as ourselves we ought to love ourselves. And then you really ought not to love things. But if you did, those would come down at the bottom of the list. This um, uh, this idea of rightly ordered love could um, uh, could Aristotle get there? I don't think so. Or or rather, as far as I know uh, from my reading, Aristotle doesn't get there. Whether whether he could or not, you might think at first that he would have the resources to talk about love because, after all, uh, the Greeks gave us that carefully nuanced vocabulary for love that we remember every time we talk about John 3.16 and agape love is the highest. And the word philosophy uses the friendship notion of love in the philos. Uh, But Aristotle prefers to go for an, an intellectual assessment of moral virtues. So he doesn't take at all this tack. Uh, but I, you know what? I think that it, it ultimately comes down to what looks on the one hand like an insufficient anthropology, uh, uh, an inadequate view of the human being, as you suggested earlier today. Uh, but ultimately, I think it comes down from the fact that Augustine could know God and Aristotle and Plato and Socrates, alas, couldn't. Hmm. So um, this is that that passage that I just find so um, helpful and fruitful from our article on justification in uh, Apology. God cannot be treated nisi per verbum. He can't be treated except through the word, Jesus, and the written word, which is all about Jesus. So um, in a sense, however noble and open-minded their efforts were, Socrates, Plato, Aristotle, they could not have begun to do what Augustine was doing because they didn't have Christ and the scriptures. Uh, did they Did they have something? What was the category that Aristotle would have used to talk about the will? Um, he doesn't have a category. Hmm. He doesn't have a category. Um, Plato and Aristotle the two Greek heavyweights on this advert or gesture every once in a while to what comes out in many translations as will, but it really is just acknowledging that a choice has to be made or a choice has to be thought through. There's no category. There's no um, recognition in the human being that there is such a feature to our being as will. So uh, just just for a quick mention here, that's what um, is a, a real major vulnerability in the noble Socrates, right? Uh, In fact, we even call this the Socratic fallacy. He assumes that once you are taught or once you discover what the good is, that you're going to want to do that and then go ahead and do it. Um, Now, by contrast to that, between Socrates, Plato, Aristotle, and Augustine, in fact, almost smack dab in between, in the fullness of time, if you put the three major Greek philosophers at 400 BC and Augustine is at 400 AD. In between, we've got the Apostle Paul, for instance. So, um, you know, think about that famous passage from Romans 7, 
for I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now, if I do not do what I want, I agree with the law, which is good, and and so forth. So Paul is highlighting, as if I can say this, Jesus is also highlighting the critical human importance of will, uh, as, for instance, when Jesus teaches us to pray in the third petition, thy will be done. Um, that, as far as I know, is nowhere in anybody else's prayer outside the Hebrew Scriptures and then the New Testament, and then it gets into the Western bloodstream. Uh, but I, I can say it's not, uh, it's not in the conceptual package that Socrates, Plato, and Aristotle bring. Because that petition, thy will be done, it assumes that we have a will, and it assumes that God has a will, and it assumes that those two wills at least are going to be contrary to one another, and that we are going to side ourselves, we're, we're going to in fact stand against our own will on the side of God's will. All, all those things are going to be included in that petition. At, at the very minimum, those things are going to be included. Oh, right. And and uh, how about this? I think that we both agree. You You actually can't have an intelligible conversation about the Lord's Prayer and that petition, thy will be done, unless and until um, we know the Jesus who is speaking that in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 6, right? So it's a there's a tip-off that there's something absolutely fundamentally beyond our kith and kin, beyond our ability to remediate, if it's a matter of our willfully being opposed to God. How... how how does um and maybe with paul and and with with Jesus, but especially with augustine here in in the text we're talking about how um how does this idea of rightly ordered love um intersect with augustine's idea of the will uh how do those two go with each other or complement each other? I think maybe that the the way they speak to each other is they're both part of this fulsome real life understanding of the human being that Augustine got from Scripture, I think especially from the Psalms and from the Apostle Paul. So um, let's just try this. Augustine has a, a fascinating historical position, if you can put it that way, right? So uh, he comes on the scene basically right after the Council of Nicaea in 325 AD. And... Um, please correct my dates here, I may be a little bit off, in the 380s would be when the Council of Chalcedon took place, right? So Augustine is right there in the midst of, of this first um, authoritative normative study of the Bible to summarize what the Bible says about the three persons of the Trinity. And Augustine is pitching in. So he's got a, a big, very uh, valuable book simply called The Trinity. So here's what, what I think is showing up in his thinking about the human being. Augustine realizes that the glue that holds the Trinity together, if you will, is a shared will in the one God among the three persons. So we see Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane and hear him praying as the second person of the Godhead to his Father, not my will, but thine be done. And from that, uh, we could understand that a critical thing to understand about God, because he's revealed something of it there, is uh, this harmonious will 
among the three persons of the Trinity. Then um, it seems to me that Augustine is also a really big fan of the Apostle John. So John is the Apostle of Love, and in bringing into play uh, the way John writes in his Gospel, surely, but also in his first epistle, didn't it sound in a couple of the passages you read like Augustine was ashamed of what he had done as a 16-year-old and that he could be the kind of human being who had done that um, because of of his transgression and uh, prodigality, his wastefulness of God's love. So if you put those two together, um, a matter of what I identified as affect or emotion, love, and a matter of volition or will, um, the will of our Father who is in heaven, those two biblically belong in the same conversation. And so Augustine, informed as he is by the Bible, is holding both of those together as he considers his theft of the pears and human nature after the fall and so forth. Now those two can, so they can go wrong as well. So according to the affect, our emotions, I can have a wrongly ordered love. I can want the wrong thing. And the result will be that I'll act accordingly. I'll act out of, out of God's order and I'll, I'll do something wicked. So, so the, it, do, am I understanding that right? So the, the wrongly ordered love will result in um, even a willful breaking of God's commandments, a, a sin. Well, sure, we can be loving in the wrong way, right? So um, here's, a, <laughs> here's a bit of father conversation. Um, so, you know, your, your daughter falls in love with this guy, and this could be a wonderful thing. But um, as a father... Uh, we are probably the person who is going to step in and say well or say badly, but certainly say with the best of intentions, yes, honey, I I know that you love him, but is he worthy of your love? <laughs> right? right? Right. So, she, you know, um, bless her. Our daughter is are, is being very loving, but the question is whether she has the right object of her love. And so... A human being is going to operate according to will. We're going to will something and, as you said, act accordingly. We're going to love something and act accordingly. But we're also uh, characterized by loving whatever it is and by willing whatever it is. And the project of Augustine is to preach and to dialogue and convince us that the proper object, to use some cold terminology, but the proper object of our love and the proper object of our will is nothing less than the God of the Bible himself. We love because he first loved us. And now, um, after the fall into sin, and especially after the coming of Jesus, it has to be a good love, a healthy love, which is to say it has to have the proper object. There, th- This seems to be the thing that is lost today, at least that I see it, is that we apparently... Um, Love is uh, beyond critique. So if I love something, it doesn't matter if it's good or if it's bad. I love it. That makes it right. And as if that's the only question we can ask. Now, that's so obviously wrong uh, when you spend two minutes thinking about it. You know, if some person loves, you know, going around and licking tires because, hey, you you love the wrong thing. You should stop loving that or you should at least stop acting on it because your, your loving is broken. 
But we apparently the the, the only way to prove something is good or right nowadays is you just got to say, well, I love it, and then uh, that, and that's supposed to instantly make it okay. Now that would, I mean, that Augustine, I, I'm not even sure he could comprehend that kind of thinking. Well, that that would seem to be the case. Uh, nor should we put up with that. I think if if we are actually going to love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And if we are going to love our neighbor as ourselves, which is knowing us through the eyes and love of Christ for us, um, it's a very unloving thing to allow folks to get away with that silliness and use our silence as an endorsement. And I I think that this is also a good time um, to say, I think on the one hand, um, if this is the first time that some of our listeners are hearing the story of the pears, um, they should be pretty upset. And they should be pretty upset that we didn't bring this up somewhere in grade school or high school or certainly the university. But, of course, now that we're aware of it, uh, we have to avail ourselves of this. And and we simply have to help our um, our sons and daughters and our grandsons and granddaughters get over this um, enforced ignorance that comes from pre-censoring these great texts from education. Yeah, yeah. Now, Augustine, there's t- there's two more things that Augustine's going to say about this. But one, he's going to answer the question. And so I want to talk about that. Sure. What, what then did I love in that theft, he says, and wherein did I even corruptly and pervertedly imitate my Lord? So he's saying, how was my theft an imitation of God? He asks this question. Did I wish, even by stealth, to do contrary to thy law, because by power I could not, so that being a prisoner, I might mimic a maimed liberty by doing with impugnity things unpermitted, a darkened likeness of thy omnipotency? So, so he's, he's in fact wondering if that, um, that his theft, his, lo- his stealing of the pears, was was a realization that being in bondage to uh to, to I don't know a fallen will or even uh, to God's law or or something being in bondage he's going to act like he's free and and then and so that to falsely imitate the freedom and omnipotence the, the all-powerfulness of God even though he he's by by the very act he's showing that he's in bondage because you're being so attentive to the text, Brian, you're being much more interesting than I'm about to be. But I, I need a second to step back and explain um, in kind of a, a definitional way why this is so hard for us to appreciate and maybe even to pay attention to. Sure. So um, when we today hear about the matter of will or free will, we have been tutored in um, a very modern and recent understanding that's, I think, only about 200 years old. But we've heard it so much that it has become our default understanding as if this is what free will is. So our understanding of free will today comes from the European Enlightenment, and in particular, I'd say, from the German philosopher Immanuel Kant, who died just after 1800. Kant taught that um, as an Enlightenment thinker, who wanted to help us not to act as if the God of the Bible didn't exist, right? Now, wanted to have a, 
a secular society on the assumption things would be better. He taught us to think of free will in terms of the word autonomy, a law unto ourselves. Um, and this has been an extremely powerful, because I, I think it's a fairly demonic understanding of free will, has been so powerful that um, when I teach uh, bioethics at Concordia, uh, along with and supporting my uh, good friend Kevin Voss, who has our bioethics institute, when I teach bioethics, the people that we read, the main sources, the folks who are anthologized, are actually teaching um, an autonomy to the point of if a person wants to receive the means for committing suicide at any time, that they have a right to do that. That's a radicalized autonomy, okay? So the assumption then is I have free will if and only if I can do whatever I want and everybody will support me in doing that when I am a law unto myself, an autonomous. Now, before the Enlightenment and before this um, effort to scrub God and the Bible out of our public conversations and our thinking, Augustine was the one who had provided the definition of free will. And Augustine's definition of free will ran like this. Your will is free to the extent that it harmonizes with God's will. <laughs> Your will is free to the extent that it harmonizes with God's will. Um, so, on, on that understanding, if Augustine is realizing as he looks back at himself at age 16 that he did what he did because he just delighted in doing what was the opposite of God, what he's really saying is, I didn't have a free will, I had a will that was enslaved. And my will was enslaved to myself. Oh, that's to myself. I, I can't say for sure, but I would say that that's probably, um, Augustine is probably the source where Luther got that very helpful notion of sin being curvatus a se, being uh, turned in on ourselves, right? So um, Augustine's notion is something like our... Uh, our uh, old-school cliché, a physician who treats himself as a fool for a patient. A person <laughs> who practices radical autonomy, right? And I guess you can fill in the blank there. Um, is, is an idiot of a master and a fool of a slave at the same time. This is really something because a lot of times we hear this this cliché today that that God didn't create robots. Um, so that so that we must have a free will to choose to love God or to choose to sin. But if that was the definition of free will, to be able to sin or not sin, or just to do what you want to do, to be to to make a choice, then it would it, it would make no sense um, that we would have any sort of freedom in the resurrection when we finally can't sin. But but we understand it as Christians that when we finally can't sin, then we're fi finally free. That insofar as we're sinning, we're in bondage. Yes, yes. And and that freedom is now a sense of being set free from sin. So that's exactly what, to the extent that my will harmonizes with God's will, I am free. Now we would understand that to harmonize with God's will or to be keeping God's commandments not as a, f a freedom. We would almost understand it as a bondage. But you're saying that goes back to Kant's destruction of the right understanding of free will. Yes, yes, that's right. Uh, to be fair, um, Immanuel Kant uh, didn't do this strong version of it that I referred to as radicalized autonomy, 
But of course, that sets the table for it. If you take God out of the picture, whose will are we going to end up following? There's something more that Augustine gets to. And this, in some ways, after this kind of litany of how every sort of corrupt action is a, in fact, an echo of the original temptation in the garden. You shall be like God. And, and Augustine's going to show how every time we act in pride or laziness or whatever, that we're, it's a, what it says here, a perversion imitation of God, uh, which I think is really phenomenal. But then he follows it up with, and I thought at first that this was a kind of a minor point, almost like a footnote. But he says, I would have never done this if I would have been by myself. Uh, he says that I, I did this because I was, I was with uh, all my buddies and I wanted them to be impressed at, you know, what a bad boy I was. Uh, I, I suppose what Paul says in 1 Corinthians, um, uh, bad company ruins good morals in 1 Corinthians 15. And he makes that point as well. Um, why, why do you think Augustine kind of hones in on that aspect of sin uh, in this place? I don't know for sure. I I think this is a point where I've noticed that he doesn't spend very much time on that. Um, and also, <laughs> should probably get this out of the way, neither one of us wants to talk about peer pressure here. <laughs> um, but the... You know, surely the, the thing must be, uh, must be that what he explained before, that the exercise of what we today would call free will is really a bondage to oneself and a, a perverse rejection of God's goodness. Um, that's the main part. It is, uh, you know, it's important to remember that Augustine certainly isn't um, as prolific and very helpful as he can be. He certainly isn't uh, presenting gospel truth in everything that he says. And this is this is one of the spots where I think you actually hear um, what I learned the process was for writing confessions. Uh, that is, Augustine, as this bishop now, uh, needs to do some writing, and he needs to do some writing that's going to help to teach other people in the church. Um, so um, he's actually... I understand he's actually walking around dictating this book that we know as the Confessions to anywhere from two to four secretaries who are frantically copying things down. <laughs> now that you know, none none of this uh, editing that well, I won't speak for you, but that I would probably do so I didn't look so bad in even a, a an autobiographical example I might use. Uh, but it just you know, it's basically just coming out and. And so I think we're probably seeing there something that is really not central to the story of the pairs and is um, just a kind of an indication that he's still fighting a certain defensiveness or a need to justify himself. Uh, but he gets right back on target shortly after that. Yeah, I was thinking about how um, th at this point that I think is important for us to remember is uh, maybe the more we think that we're autonomous, the kind of illusion of being a law to ourselves, the more we in fact open ourselves up to influence. Uh, that, that that our conscience is always um, is being shaped by the people around us, by, by the law, uh, by the culture, and most especially by our peers. It's it's shaping our conscience and our understanding of what's right and wrong. And so when we turn, like Augustine says, when we turn away from God and, and face away from Him. We're opening ourselves up to um, to the influence of the world, the flesh, and the devil, 
um, which is then not good. Um, he, he, he ends that little section which says, but when the, when they said, let's go, let's do it, we are ashamed not to be shameless. <laughs> and then, and then this, who can disentangle that twisted and intricate naughtiness? <laughs> Foul it is. I hate to think on it, to look on it. But thee I long for, O righteousness and innocency, beautiful and comely to all pure eyes, and a satisf and of a satisfaction unsatiating, with thee is rest entire. That is beautiful. And that's really how Augustine starts his confession. Our souls are restless until they find rest in thee, O Lord. And and here he comes back to that theme that that when we're um when we're facing away from God, uh there's always a restlessness. But in God, who is all of these things, good and holy and right, we find some sort of settling. Ah, uh, yes, that's exactly right. And that um, that phrase that you were reminding us of, uh, you arouse us so that praising you may bring us joy because you have made us and drawn us to yourself and our heart is unquiet. His Latin is inquietus until... It rests in you, O oh Lord. Uh, that's actually the leitmotif of the entire book. And you were just reading in that older translation one of the half dozen or so spots where that same recognition uh, that we are restless, inquietus, apart from Jesus, uh, comes up throughout confessions. Well, I um, this is a fantastic uh, 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 conversation and this metaphor, and I think particularly helpful. Um, I, I'm kind of interested, maybe as we close out the conversation, uh, Dr. Schultz, in, um, uh, if, if you would maybe point to a couple of ways that this metaphor is helpful for us, and, and maybe that would come by thinking how um, we don't think in these terms anymore, how th this understanding of, of humanity, of rightly ordered love, of our will, uh, has been lost. You mentioned how Kant has redefined free will, but it, how, how else have we, have we lost this metaphor? Well, there's a, a good 20th century example that I think um, you and I would both agree on, and that's uh, C.S. Lewis's book, Abolition of Man. So um, in, uh, in that book, which is a collection of three essays, there's one essay called Men Without Chests, which, um, by the way, is a reference back to Plato's view of the three-part soul. Uh, the missing part is our emotions. And Lewis says... Um, that we are doing all sorts of dreadful things by not helping to educate the emotions of our children as they grow up. Uh, we still haven't learned that lesson today. So just in terms of paying attention to um, this aspect of our created and redeemed being, our emotions, um, that's very valuable. Another thing is, um, as you know, I thoroughly appreciated in your approach again today that, that you kept on emphasizing and quoting from the text is that we need to read the text and not summaries of it. So in Confessions, um, I can tell you in a lot of the, the books that um, I use and books that come across my desk <laughs> trying to get me to make my students buy them, that when Augustine is is portrayed, it's it's just um, kind of the, the guts that are taken out of this. So the story of the pairs is there, but without the dialogue he's having with God and his word. So that's a, you know, that's a, a second hugely critical thing 
it's not just that you can't get Augustine if you don't pay attention to the prayers, but it's that Augustine, I think, would strongly object because uh, he actually is doing a philosophy katakristan. He's, he's trying to do philosophy and thinking through these important issues of how we ought to live and why we ought to lead a good life. He's trying to do it in this robust dialogue uh, with Christ and his word. So the second thing there is is the notion of the praying. And then that suggests that, again, in um, almost jargon-like terms, our metaphysics or our worldview is really not big enough to accommodate Augustine's philosophy. And <laughs> That's I, I fantastic. Think, yeah, I think that means that we need to to have Augustine in our lives uh, to stretch us more. You know, we, we live in an, in an impoverished world, and it's only through sources that make good and faithful and rich use of Scripture that we're really going to be able to do that. And Augustine, um, I've got some cautions about his use of language, which I think are, are very serious, uh, and his view of the Bible as a means of grace. But um, the fact is that he uses Scripture all the time. And so you can't help but have God working his will in our hearts and minds because you've got this means of grace that is just constantly bubbling up through the floorboards or coming down from the clouds when Augustine is doing philosophy. I think I've been trying to read through Augustine's The City of God, and that is, a, I think, going to be a, a particularly pertinent text. Uh, that, uh, you know, Augustine was defending the church, uh, or God, I suppose, against the claim of the, of the Roman Empire as it has fallen, that it was the Christian's fault. And um, as now, as we see kind of the ongoing collapse of the Western world, it is, again, the church that's blamed for this. And Augustine says, there is a city of God established by his word, which cannot uh, cannot fall, and and so that's really uh, quite wonderful. So I appreciate that. Well, I, and I appreciate this conversation. This is, um, in fact, I, I don't know if the, our listeners going to be able to tell, but it, it just see, it seems to me like moving from Plato and Aristotle to Augustine that there's kind of um, that there's blood now <laughs> running through these metaphors. Um, there's something different when you move from the Greek thinkers to the to the Christian thinkers. Um, uh, it, it's it's kind of it's at a different level of engagement in reality. Um, you almost kind of taste it in the way Augustine writes, and I think this is really wonderful. And it gets me um, excited for next week's metaphor, which will be Aquinas's Phoenix. And I think his work on the difference between accidents and essence, if I if I uh, if I know what's coming. 